Well, good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Today we want to look at the topic of Christ and his church. And the verses we'll be looking at are verses 18 through 20. But uh, for context, I'd love to read Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13 and down through verse 20. Read with me in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, Robert Saucy served as professor of systematic theology at Talbot Theological Seminary in California. He went to be with the Lord in 2015 after injuries from a car accident that he sustained. He's the author of a a book called The Church in God's Program, and he writes this. Throughout the course of history, God has worked in the world in a variety of ways through individuals, nations, and peoples. The focus of his present work is the church, that which was begun in the scriptures as men and women were called to acknowledge the lordship of Christ continues today in fulfillment of Christ's promise to build his church. Not only is Christ building his church, but it is the primary instrument through which he ministers in the world. As Christ was sent by the Father, so the church bears the ambassadorial role for its Lord as sent ones with a message of reconciliation to the world. Well, we live in an age now where people can visit a church without leaving their living room. They can go online and stream a service like millions of Christians are doing today. They can look at a church's website, read through the doctrinal statement, investigate its leadership, examine the church's mission and purpose and vision, peruse the values of the church, and determine whether or not it's worth their time to visit. They can find out almost everything they need to do before even dropping in for a morning worship service. Christ has much to say about his church, the church that he purchased with his own body and his own blood. The doctrine of the church is found in the word of God. There we can find out what the church is and what the church should be doing, who should be leading the church, and what is the responsibility of its members. We can do all of this without ever walking into a church building. So what is the church? Who makes up the church? What is the church to be doing? What is my responsibility to the church? 
Well, each of these questions can be answered by a thorough and careful study of the Word of God. So today I want to give you seven characteristics of the church that Christ loves and builds. Seven characteristics of the church that Christ loves and builds. Number one, Christ defines his church. Christ defines his church. I just read for you from Matthew 16, and here in verse 18, we have the first mention of the church in the New Testament, this great Greek word, ekklesia. And so we see here that Jesus is the one who came up with the concept of the New Testament church. It was his idea. Christ ordained the New Testament church. And most of you know the definition of a church. It's an assembly, a congregation, a church. It is those who have been called out. It's a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public assembly. That is what the church is. Those who have been called out of the world and called unto Jesus Christ. To be set apart. To be his own special people for his own plan and purpose. We see that the world has tried to define what the church is what the church should be, what the church should be doing, what the church should look like. And I don't know if you noticed, but that does not always correlate with the Lord's definition of the church. Too often the church looks like the world. But according to Jesus, the one who said, I will build my church, the church is to be a gathering or an assembly of those who have been called out of the world. And the church should be radically different from the world in which we live. When we walk into this building, when we come together for church, it should not be the same as the world that we have experienced from Monday through Saturday. The church should be different. The world is hostile to Christ. The world is antagonistic to those who identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is to be made up of those who have been delivered from the world and all of its pleasures. The church is to be filled with those who have turn their back on the world. The church is to be composed with people who do not love the world, but instead love Christ and love his word. That is what the church is, according to Jesus, the one who defined the church. He came up with the idea of the New Testament church, and so we must look to him as to what the church should be and what it should look like and what it should be doing. Number two, we see that Christ designs his church. Christ designs his church. Here in verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. There's a possessive pronoun here, and here we see again that the church belongs to Christ. It was his idea. It was his concept. It belongs to him. So should we not look to him to see what the church should look like? We have many people today, pastors, church planters, church growth experts, designing and constructing constructing churches as to what they believe the church should look like. And in the process, they have not consulted the great architect himself. And that is dumbfounding. No one knows more about the church than Christ himself. He has defined the church and he has designed the church. 
So why in the world would anyone want to leave him out when constructing a church? The Lord has given us a blueprint. It is found in his word, but many have chosen to disregard it and build the church in the way that they see fit. Mark Dever, who's pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., has written a great little book called The Deliberate Church, and he says this, it would be patently stupid, I like that, to start construction on a building without first knowing what kind of building building we plan to construct. An apartment complex is different from an office complex, which is different still from a restaurant. They all have different blueprints, different kinds of rooms, different materials, uses, and shapes. So the process of building will be different depending on what kind of structure we're planning to build. The same goes for building a church. A church is not a Fortune 500 company. It's not simply another nonprofit organization, nor is it a social club. In fact, a healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. I really like that quote, especially that last line that says, a healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. And we see that the church is is more than an organization. It is a living organism. It is full of those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, but who have been made alive by Christ and by his spirit. Man did not come up with the idea for the church Again, the concept and the design comes from Christ. And so if we want to know what the church should look like, we should first consult with the divine architect of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who says here, I will build my church. The church belongs to me, Jesus says, and this is what it should look like. Jesus here is with his disciples while they were alone, while they were secluded from the crowds. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always willing to answer first and does so well here, answers for the 12 by saying, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, you're right. You did not come up with this on your own, though. This came from the Father himself. But on this confession, on this fact that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, God incarnate, I will build my church. The church begins with Christ, who he is, the fact that he is the Messiah and that he is God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit." Paul here says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those who taught, those who proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, those who gave their lives for Christ, those who were martyred for defending the claims 
of Jesus. There is design to the church. There is structure. And it comes from Christ himself and it is found in his holy word. Christ has given instruction for those who would be in authority in his church, for for pastors, for elders, for shepherds. There are qualifications. There's not just a sign-up sheet in the back that says anyone who wants to be an elder or a leader. Not anyone can just lead the church of Christ. Paul, an apostle who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave those qualifications for an overseer, for a pastor. We read about those in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. These pastors and overseers are called to shepherd the flock of God. They are to preach Christ in season and out of season. They are to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction and proclaim the fact that Christ is the head of the church. They are to exercise oversight, according to Peter, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Clear instruction for God's shepherds, who they should be, what they should be doing, and how they should do it. There is also clear instruction for us, for the people of God, those who make up the church, those who are members of the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. There's also clear instruction for the church and what the church should be doing. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the household of God. It is the dwelling place of the living God. And the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church should be holding up the very word of God. And so when we come together, we are to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the head of the church. The church is built upon him alone, and so he alone is worthy of our adoration and our praise. We are to be equipping the saints. Paul again tells us that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are to evangelize the lost. I am aware of the reality that there are most likely unbelievers who walk into this church every Sunday or join us online every Sunday. They should hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and how they can be forgiven of their sins and have everlasting life. 
but our services should never be designed for unbelievers. The church was never intended to be for unbelievers. Christ has defined his church as an assembly or a congregation of the called out ones. Again, those who have been called out of the world, out of their sins, unto Christ. Those who have been called to holiness and to righteousness. The church should not be going door to door to the homes of unbelievers, to those who hate Christ, to those who are hostile to God, and asking them what they want in a church or what they think the church should look like and then cater to their desires and wishes. You're like, Kirby, that's elementary, but that's what many churches have done today. I think there are two reasons why unbelievers should never should not be consulted in what they want in a church. Number one, they don't know what the church should look like because they don't know his word. And number two, because the church does not belong to them. The church belongs to Christ. And so we need in our country, in our world, we need to return to God's blueprint for the church, the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, God-breathed, unchanging, timeless, relevant word of God. What does he say about his church? What should it look like? What should the church be doing? And what should it not be doing? The church belongs to Christ. He founded it. He defined it. He designed it. And just a reminder for all of us who are here, who are a part of the church, the church doesn't belong to us either. We are his body. We belong to his church. But the construction and the design of the church is not up to us. It is up to Christ and his word. But many times, even us, even us as followers of Jesus, the people of God, we forget what church is all about. We forget sometimes that church is not really about us. We forget that we are not the head of the church, but Christ has that title. We forget that church is not really about what I get out of it, but rather about how I am to use the gifts that God has given me to edify and encourage the body of Christ. I wonder how often we get into the car and our truck on a Sunday morning with the mindset of, what is the church going to do for me today? Instead of, how can I serve the body of Christ today? And how often do we get back in the car at the conclusion of a Sunday service as we return home or go out to lunch and we criticize the Sunday school teacher or the pastor, not because it was unbiblical or heretical, not because it was not glorifying to God and faithful to his word, but because it was not what we wanted that day. Or perhaps we complain about the music because it was not our style, or because we did two songs we were not familiar with, even though they magnified the person and work of Jesus Christ and helped us to come into the very presence of God. Beloved, sometimes we forget that the church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. He paid for his church. He paid for his church with his own body and with his own blood. And so the questions we should be asking are, was the Lord Jesus Christ exalted in our worship service? Was the word of God proclaimed? Were believers edified and equipped for the work of service 
and was the gospel presented to those who do not know him. Those are the things that are pleasing to God, and these are the things that define Christ and his church. Again, back to Mark Dever. He's written another book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, These are the nine marks, according to a man, according to a pastor. They're not inspired, but I believe they are very biblical. He lists them as expositional preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the good news, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, promotion of Christian discipleship and growth, and a biblical understanding of leadership. Well, many of these fly in the face of the current church growth movement, but these come from a correct and biblical ecclesiology, a correct understanding of the doctrine of the church that is derived from the teaching of Christ that is found here in his word. If we want to know what the church is and what the church should be doing and who should be leading and what the responsibility of the members are, we need to look to the one who has defined his church, the one who came up with the concept of the New Testament church. We need to look to the one who has designed his church, the great architect himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, the third characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds, Christ develops his church. Christ develops his church. Jesus says here in verse 18, I will build my church. Christ is still building the church today. It is not complete. Paul says that he gave some to be apostles and some to be pastors and some to be pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the, to the mature of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I think there's a question that we might often think about. Why have we not yet been raptured? Why are we still here? Is it because we have to go through the great tribulation period? I really hope not. That would really destroy my end times theology. No, I believe Christ's return has not yet occurred and we are still here because Christ is not done building his church. He is currently gathering his elect, those who God chose before the foundation of the world. And he is bringing believers together. This is the dynamic of the church, male and female, slave and free, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, growing them, maturing them, giving them a greater understanding of who God is and who they were before they knew Christ and what Christ has done on their behalf. Jesus says here, I will build my church. The tense here is future. It's it's a statement of absolute certainty, and it is the divine promise of the divine Savior. John MacArthur says, in using the future tense, Jesus was not saying, as some contend, that he had not built his church in the past. The idea is that he would continue to build his church just as he has always done. Jesus was not emphasizing the time of his building, but its certainty. No matter how liberal, fanatical, ritualistic, apathetic, or apostate, 
its outward adherence may be, and not, no matter how decadent the rest of the world may become, Christ will build his church. Therefore, no matter how oppressive and hopeless their outward circumstances may appear from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Well, many times you will see on the side of a church building a date, uh, our church building that we purchased in Indiana in 2005 had a date on it, 1987. That was the date when that building was completed. Well, there is no date on Christ's church because the building is not yet complete. It has been a long building project. The construction began around 30 AD and the cornerstone was laid, Christ being that cornerstone. The foundation was poured, the church being built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. The blueprints are finished. Christ knows what the end result will be, what the church will look like, and he even knows when the project will be completed. But for now, the building continues. Christ is developing his church, and you and I, by the amazing grace of a loving and merciful God, are part of his church, and we are members of his body. Hallelujah. Christ defines his church. He designs his church. He develops his church. Fourthly, Christ defends his church. Look again in verse 18. He says, I also say to you that, are, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This verse is full of interpretive issues. What did Jesus mean when he said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and Upon this rock, I will build my church. My interpretation is that Christ was saying, upon this confession that Peter makes when he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. It's upon this confession that Jesus says, I will build my church. Now we need to determine what does he mean when he says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Many of you, or most of your translations have the word Hades here. If you have the King James or the ESV or even the New Living Translation, you have the word hell instead of Hades. It's the word Hades in the Greek, and it means the world of the dead or death. Hades often, if not always, refers to hell when it is found in the Gospels. I think it is best to interpret it hell here in Matthew 16. Some interpret this as the realm of the dead, but those who favor this interpretation have difficulty showing in what way the gates of that realm are striving to overpower the church and are failing in their assault. The Lord here is giving a divine promise. Just as he promised to build his church, here he is promising to defend his church. And when Hades is interpreted as, as indicating hell, that assurance can be readily understood. This is a figure of speech that represents Satan and his legions, as it were, storming out of the gates of hell with the purpose of attacking and destroying the church. But Christ promises Peter and the disciples that this will never occur. And here we have a promise that is often repeated in Scripture that Christ's church will be victorious over the forces of evil. In John 16, 33, 
Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Revelation 17, verse 14, talking about the beast and the 10 kings. It says, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. In Romans 16, 20, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a great verse. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Here we have divine promises from a divine book and a divine savior. And we read that the church will not be overcome. Never. Christ is our defender. He defends the church that he has defined. He protects the church that he has designed. And he preserves the church that he is currently developing and building. Many of the songs that we sing remind us of this grand truth. Isaac Watts wrote the great hymn, O God, our help in ages past. And he writes, Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Martin Luther writing, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. William Hendrickson, a great Bible commentator, says, Jesus promised that he would always cause his people to triumph over the devil and his army. This promise is given not to lukewarm Laodiceans, but to Christian soldiers. And this promise must have prompted Reverend Sabine Baron Gould of England to write that great hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, where he penned these tremendous words, crowns and thorns may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. Amen? We know that Nero tried to destroy the church by killing off all the Christians, and though he put many to death, he was unsuccessful in destroying the church. Hitler attempted to kill all the Jews, many of those who would trust Jesus as Messiah and become members of the body of Christ, and he was unsuccessful in doing so. And Satan, the most powerful creature on the earth, with all of his demons, with all the legions of hell, with all the forces of evil, has been trying for nearly 2,000 years to destroy the church. And he has been and will forever be unsuccessful. Many years ago, I put my son Jonathan down for a nap. I think it was on a Saturday afternoon. He was probably around three then. He's 17 now, he doesn't take naps so much anymore. But I remember putting him in his crib and he asked me to tell him a story before I laid him down. And And I was about to go mow the yard and I told him how one time when I was mowing the yard, I saw a snake. I had finished mowing and was beginning to weed eat and I was cutting some weeds and I saw this little black snake and the snake thought about challenging me, but then he saw I had a weed eater. 
and he decided to slip away. Well, Satan is powerful. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour, but he is no match for Christ and no match for the sinless Savior. God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who cannot lie, has told us through the weapon he has given the church, the sword of the Spirit, the inerrant word of God, that the church will not be overcome by the powers of hell. You can count on it. The Lord will protect and preserve his church forever. Praise God. Number five, Christ designates power to his church. Christ designates power to his church. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty self-explanatory. Let's move on to the next point. No. Christ defines his church. He designs his church. He develops his church. He defends his church. The church belongs to him. He holds the deed to the church and he holds the keys to life and death. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Revelation 3, 7, he who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. He has the right and authority to give power to his church. He has the right to determine who should be allowed into heaven and who must be refused entrance into his kingdom. And he does so. The word you here is a singular pronoun. This is spoken to Peter, just as Peter, or just as Jesus told Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here he tells Peter, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But this does not mean that Peter became the head of the church or that he was the chief apostle. It is abundantly clear in the scriptures that Christ is the head of the church. Jesus speaks this to Peter, for it was Peter who made this great confession that, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. But it is clear from the book of Acts that the apostles as a group exercised this right and power, all of them doing this on an equal basis. We read in Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. There was no boss. There was no superintendent among the apostles. There was no chief apostle. Peter was not the Pope in the midst of a group of cardinals. But as we see throughout the Gospels, including Matthew, the influence of Peter was great. He was the leader of the Twelve. He was the spokesman of the Twelve. It was Peter who gave that great sermon at Pentecost, where thousands of people were saved. And through the preaching of the Word, Peter was opening the doors to the kingdom to some and closing it to others. Jesus gave Peter and the disciples power. He transferred his power to them when he ascended back to the Father. Jesus told them back just before he was to ascend in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And with that power, the apostles, as it says in Acts 17, 6, turned the world upside down. And the world has never been the same. The church was begun and millions have been added since. And you and I are part of that great multitude. For by the mercy of Almighty God, the kingdom of heaven has been opened to you and to me by his grace and for his glory. Number six, we see that Christ delegates authority to his church. Christ delegates authority to his church. Here again in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We know at the end of this great book, the the book of Matthew, we see the great commission. Again, before Jesus ascends back to heaven and the father, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He gave the disciples power, but he also gave them authority. The authority he had while he was on the earth and the authority he presently has from the right hand of the Father in heaven. He tells them here, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If this verse sounds familiar, it's because we find it again later in the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, in relation to church discipline. Jesus gives a similar statement in the Gospel of John in John 20, verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Well, this is some difficult language. It's hard to interpret. It's difficult to understand. But let me try to give some explanation. I want you to look closely at the wording here. Jesus says, whatever and not whoever. He is referring to things. And in this case, beliefs and actions. Therefore, if a person continued to do or to believe what was forbidden, refusing to repent, he would be disciplined. He would be bound. If, however, the person repented from his evil way, he would be forgiven and he would be loosed and that ban would be lifted. And so Jesus addresses Peter here, the the leader the representative of the 12, and tells him, whatever you bind or forbid on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose or permit on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He told Peter and the 12, and really by extension all other believers, that they had the astounding authority to declare what is divinely forbidden or permitted on the earth. And that is incredible. Jesus gives assurance that whatever Peter, representing the 12 here in Matthew 16, or the 12 as addressed in John 20, and ultimately whatever the church as addressed in 
Matthew 18, binds on earth shall be and shall definitely remain bound in heaven. And whatever Peter and the disciples and the church loose on earth shall be and definitely remain loosed in heaven. That still may not be enough to clarify. So let me give, illustrate here with another example. We know that the early church did not come up with the New Testament canon. It was not Marcion or Irenaeus or Origen or even even Athanasius who came up with the 66 books of the Bible. God in heaven determined the canon of scripture. God, God himself determined that our Bible would be composed of 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. The early church simply recognized or affirmed what had already been determined in heaven. And so when you look at a passage like Matthew 18, 18 to 20, if someone is in sin and an individual has gone to that person and they have refused to repent and he has taken one or two others with him and he still refuses to repent and you take it to the church and now the church calls that person to repentance and he still refuses to repent and he is removed or excommunicated from the local church, the church is determining that he is bound in his sin. The church is affirming what has already been determined in heaven. Again, we do this on the basis of God's inerrant and authoritative word and on his word alone, not on church tradition, not on man's opinion on what is right and wrong, and we must be careful to do this. And then in verse 20, we read, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus goes from speaking directly to Peter to speaking to all of the 12, warning them not to tell what the Father had just revealed to Peter, not to tell others that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the expected one. Can you imagine having your mind and your eyes open to this incredible fact, the true identity of Jesus, that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was God in their midst, only to be told that you could tell no one. It's almost unfathomable to think about. It's like the leper who came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy disappeared. But then Jesus tells him, see that you tell no one. Are you serious, Jesus? How can I not go and tell the world what has happened to me and who has made me well? I think the disciples must have had a similar reaction here. How can we not tell others this great news that you are the Christ, that you are the living God, that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it? That is too good of news to keep to yourself. Well, they would have to keep it to themselves, at least for a time. They were secluded in Caesarea Philippi, several miles from their homes and their families. Why would Jesus say such a thing? I believe there are a couple reasons for this instruction. Number one, it was not yet Jesus' time. In verse 21, we read, From that time Jesus began 
to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus and his disciples would return to Jerusalem one more time, but but not yet. For when they did, Jesus would be betrayed and delivered up and crucified. It was not yet his time. It was not yet the Father's time for him to go to the cross. His time was coming, but not yet. Secondly, I think a second reason Jesus would do this is because people would misunderstand the term Messiah or Christ. The people of this day would have interpreted the term Messiah or Christ in the political sense. In fact, in John 6.15, we read that so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Spreading the word that Jesus was the Christ might have fanned the flames of enthusiasm about him as a potential deliverer from the Roman oppression that the Jews were now facing. Most Jews, including the disciples, were expecting the Messiah to come as a conquering king, as a military, as a political leader to set them free from Rome and not as a savior to set them free from their sin. And so therefore he tells his disciples to remain silent about what they have just heard from the lips of the son of God. Well, that silence would only be temporary. After Christ's ascension back to heaven, the 12 were confronted by the rulers and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem, and they were commanded to not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, to which Peter and John replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And friends, that should be true of us today. We should not be able to be constrained or or restrained from telling what the Lord has done for us. Well, there's a seventh characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds, and that is Christ dies for his church. Christ dies for his church. I had to sneak ahead to verse 21. I had to have seven points instead of six, for seven is the perfect number and the number of completion. And here we see that Christ loves his church, and he loves his church so much that he is willing to die for his church. Again, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus knew this was coming. He predicted his own crucifixion and he still went to the cross because he loves his church. He loves his people more than he loved his own life. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, loved the church so much, that church which includes you and me and all who will place faith in him and him alone. He loved the church so much that he allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. He carried his own cross, placing himself on that cross voluntarily so that you and I might be forgiven and have everlasting life. That's why we're here today, amen? Amen. That is our hope. 
Can I give you an eighth characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds? It's not official uh, because we don't want to ruin what is perfect in seven, but this is a free one. And this is only available to those of you who came this morning. Okay, this special deal. Um, this will be edited and deleted before it goes on our website later today or tomorrow. Desmond, no pressure, my friend. Okay. But finally, Christ delights in his church. He delights in his people. He delights in his church in the living organism that he himself ordained and established. Beloved, he delights in you. And he delights in me, not because of anything found in us, but because we were chosen and marked out from the beginning and because we are now covered with the righteousness of him. A man named Samuel John Stone wrote a great hymn. I think we sang it last Sunday. He wrote it many years ago. It's called The Church's One Foundation. And that sums this all up when he writes, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her and for her life, he died. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for your church. Lord, we are thankful to be among those who you have called, those who you have elected before the very foundation of the world, that we would be a part of your body, a part of your family, a part of your kingdom. Lord, not because of anything that we had done. For Lord, we were sinful. We were dead in our sins. We were haters of God. We were running the other direction away from you. But because of your great love, with which you loved us, because you were rich in mercy, because you are abounding in loving kindness. You pursued us when we were pursuing self and the world and even the devil. Lord, you have called us, you have made us to be a part of your church. It is because of you, as Paul writes, that we are in Christ Jesus. You deserve all the praise, all the glory, and Lord, we will gather around your throne. We will worship the lamb for all of eternity, giving praise to you for doing something for us we could have never done for ourselves. So we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you today continue to build your church. It's not yet complete, Lord. There are still those that you are saving and bringing into this great body of believers. And so, Lord, as long as we are here, help us to be faithful, to proclaim the good news to friends, to family members, to co-workers, to teammates and classmates, to neighbors, to friends of the good news of the gospel. How men and women, boys and girls can be saved and have the forgiveness of sin and have everlasting life. Thank you for this hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.